Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Well, I want to talk about teachers, their unions, and their bargaining power this summer. It's going to be an interesting summer. Contracts run out for all the major teachers unions in August, and better early than late to get into conversations. But I'll give you some reasons why I'm not terribly worried about where this is going to go. And I actually think teachers are going to get a proper raise from the province as well. I'll explain that. Debbie Hayden is a transsexual journalist who is weighing in on transgender issues with regards to athletics, especially the FINA regulation that really uh, crossed over from sports into news, into amateur sport, and we'll have a conversation with her. How about the signs that you were an 80s Toronto kid? A great Blog TO article listing the 30 things. We didn't go through all 30, but went through some of the uh, seminal memories of being a kid growing up 35, 38 years ago in the city of Toronto. And Sebastian Clovis, our friend from HGTV, checks in and we talk about the growing costs of home renovations and a few other issues as well. It's all coming up on the Toronto Today podcast, which starts now. And many of you are experiencing, if your parents, uh, the end of a school year, I won't call it unlike any other. It's been slightly better, in some ways more frustrating, but there's been more class time than there was in 2020 and 2021. So I see the story yesterday that Ontario's teacher and support units are ready to bargain. We remember where this all was before, right? Around February of 2020, rotating strikes, days off. One day, there were so many uh, unions and boards out that there were 2 million kids not in class, not in class on a given day. And some of them went skiing and some of them were able to skate outside, do normal things. We were we were pre-pandemic. Now that we're post-pandemic, these are important conversations. Here's why I think this is going to actually go well. And here's where I think, here's where I do believe that there has to be an element of acquiescing on demands and past I don't even know that they're biases past uh, chips on shoulders from both teachers unions and the government themselves. And I can hear some of the teachers saying, what are we what, what's the government upset with us about? What is it? What could we have possibly done? We're just advocating for our brethren. We pay union dues. And trust me, I hear from teachers who are pretty afraid to speak out uh, when they disagree with something that the union is advocating. So I saw the story yesterday about moving forward and Ontario's five big education units filed bargaining notices. I'm supposed to do that. That's pretty par for the course. The contracts will expire in August and they need to be back in school. Look, I don't think this is going to be the nightmare that some are predicting. And you could have wanted the provincial uh, election a few weeks ago to go a certain way. You could have desired a certain result. If you got it, great. If you didn't get it, you still have a career. You still have a job. I know how difficult this year was. If anything, many of the awesome teachers have had to cover up for some of the teachers that either just couldn't handle it or when the going got tough, they got going. I hear from high school teachers covering a bunch of different classes, not just because teachers are out sick, because teachers are just out. And again, this is a small minority. I hate talking about people as an entire group. You know, I bristle when I hear the media, the police. I even think it gets down to wondering um, and, and debating as to why a group feels a certain way. White people want this. Black people want this. Gay people want this. Take me to their leader. Who's their leader? Who's that leader of white people? Who's that leader of gay people? You tell me. 
I'm more than willing to listen. But I think we're still individuals at the end of the day. And I hear from enough of these individuals in the education community that they want to get a deal. They want to have good conversation before September starts. Here's what I think is going to happen here. I think teachers are going to get a raise. I think they're going to get an increase on that 1%. I do believe that. I think they will get paid, not dramatically so, but the issue when it comes to education is not going to be salary. It's not going to be salary. It's not going to be pension at a certain point in time. Now, I know some people think, oh, no, Ford majority government, Stephen Lecce still the education minister. They're going to play hardball, hardball with the teachers. There is some leverage there on the education side as well. Leverage is an important thing. You got to know you have it. You have to be willing to use it when you do have it. And many of the times those two things are don't they're not in concert. They don't collide together. Remember as well, I think the government can point to teachers and say, ah, little bit of amplifying the danger of schools by some of the teachers. I do think that. And in 21, last summer at this time, I must have had several conversations on this radio show and on this radio station about the idea of a vaccine mandate. Uh, in all honesty, until about mid-August, you remember when Andrea Horvath did her about face and that was early August, like around the 5th, the 6th, the 7th. And she said, oh, I, I, I misspoke yesterday. I, I, I actually think there should be a mandate. I, I think that because she talked about Canadians charter rights and going, well, we can't make our members get vaccinated. I asked Harvey Bischoff, the former OSSTF uh, president, about that before he decided to run for you know provincial parliament i admire that i admire anybody that puts their their feet forward and are front facing and want to go into politics i admire that here's what karen littlewood the eventual um successor to harvey Bischoff, uh, bischoff said about the vaccine last summer now there's some elements of confusion to this which she attempts to clarify but i'm still not sure where this is going our communications department yesterday tweeted an article from i believe it was july 27th where the headline that they had put on for the interview I had done seemed to indicate that we don't support mandating vaccines. And that's absolutely not the case. OSSTF has been very pro-vaccine right from the start. While we had members working uh, through the lockdown last year with the highest need student, we were advocating for our members to have access to vaccines. Of course, we wanted seniors and healthcare workers to have their vaccines first, but we know that the best way to protect against the the virus is to have your vaccine and to be double vaxxed okay but that was a lot of talk and no action they never mandated it for their members they never said you'll lose your job or you'll teach from home if you don't get it they wanted other people to do it <laughs> that's great i got a lot of things around the house that i don't want to do i'd love somebody else to do it for free but life doesn't work that way you can't be pro-vax pro-vaccine's not the same as for the mandate wanting your members to get it is not the same as a mandate. And I think there has to be some understanding about that. Meantime, the school year got going and uh, it wrapped up a 2021 school year in which the, the union seemed just obsessed with the idea of masks on kids. Here's Harvey Bischoff, not exactly talking about the numbers, not exactly talking about the safety of teachers per se, but wanting to make sure even the youngest kids, especially the youngest kids, had their faces covered seven hours a day. And he's a high school union representative. Why is he worried about five-year-olds? Here's the clip. 
Uh, look, we've been calling for the summer since the summer for um, the youngest uh, children to be masked, and it seems they finally uh, they finally caught up with that and and uh, are having masking from uh, grades uh, uh, one to three. We think it should be in kindergarten as well, but you know they've made one small. Uh, step in the right direction, but have ignored so much of the advice that the that the uh, medical experts have given them. Oh, the medical experts, like all the ones in Europe who deemed face masks weren't required for kids under 13, or the World Health Organization who said, don't put masks on kids under the age of six, ever, for anything. And many uh, European countries only put them on upper secondary school kids. So I think that the education, the minister of education and I think the provincial government can push back and say, we weren't the ones that cost all the class time for kids. If that's going to be a bargaining point, I think there's a little bit of blame to go around. Told you this before. I think the provincial government dithered a little bit when Omicron hit. You might say they dithered a lot in November and December. They were crawling to the finish line to get to the Christmas break. Schools were getting shut down with two or three cases of a far more spreadable, but yes, far less severe variant, Omicron vis-a-vis Delta. And remember, we didn't get squashed by Delta at all. Why? We're heavily vaccinated and we know how to risk mitigate. And I said that a million times in the summer, that schools were going to be okay in the fall. If anything, we had our kids too repressed, too nervous, too scared, too petrified. And some of that was the influence of teachers unions and maybe just maybe individual teachers. Hell, we even got masks off kids in April. And Karen Littlewood from the OSSTF said this on our show. Um. (laughs) It's so hard to say with COVID because it's exactly what you're saying. It's waves and it comes and goes in in different areas. And, you know, it's really difficult to track what's going to happen next with COVID. We're not at the endemic stage yet. We have to be following precautions. We have to make sure that workers are protected and that they're healthy. They still need access to sick days because if people are going to get COVID again for a second time, Mm -hmm. Do they still have sick days? Are they going to be able to stay home and protect themselves? Okay, gotcha on sick days. Absolutely. But teachers already had more than enough. Most teachers have almost burned through all their sick days by this point of the year. It's the middle of June. So I think it's going to be a really interesting negotiation. But I'm not expecting strikes in September. I'm not expecting labor strife. I'm not expecting your kids and my kids not to be able to go to school. What I am expecting is a renewed emphasis on sign up for extracurriculars, give this extra time, stay behind and lead these students, get field trips going again. This has to be a normal school year. In a million different ways, this has to be a normal school year compared to what the last two and a half have been, period. And I see this in the Toronto Star. I mean, I'm not going to fall for this, okay? This headline. Many students fell behind in the pandemic, but the youngest ones are hurting most. Learning loss is the least of it. Many of us told you that would be the case. I'm not I told you so guy, but we discuss this over and over again. If you're, I don't know, a newspaper that amplified and exaggerated a lot of the concerns and decided to talk to the most scared person in a subdivision about how they're afraid to send their kids to school. If you talk to the most wrong doctor over and over again about things that were going to happen that still never end up materializing, you know, you don't get to bring the violins out and say you're concerned about how much learning loss there was during the pandemic. Sorry, you don't. I mean, it was devastating, but you didn't see the signs. You didn't see the headlights until the car drove into the wall. Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. I'm off to Wonderland today, by the way. Oh, so is my eldest. 
Stop it. Yeah, so I'll tell them to keep an eye out for you. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's the their school trip. That's it. That's it. School trip today uh, at Wonderland. They chose this over ROM. They could have done ROM and the aquarium in the same day, and they decided, no, we want oh. rides and sun and yeah. ice cream and screaming and uh, walking a lot of pavement and getting lost, although I don't really, and, Snoo- and making jokes about who's going to end up in Snoopy land. Oh, I've been making jokes about that all That's week. right. That's that right. him and his best friend will be in Snoopy. Snoopy <laughs> Land or Snoopyville? I can't remember. Yeah. It's been we'll so be long. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm the only one. My uh, my wife is not a ride person at this point. She used to be. And uh, post-children, she says that's things me. make her dizzier. Yes, that's exactly me. I used to love the roller coasters. Keep me Ever since I gave birth, keep me away from them. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was in that room, too, and I don't feel uh, oh, of I don't feel like the Leviathan <laughs> or Behemoth messes me. Although right. I won't go on the Yukon Striker. I'm too afraid. I'm The risks are too great, as we've said for a couple <laughs> years now. I'm quite worried about it. Uh, we saw this story, and there's no uh, hard turn um, and good way to get into it. But um, <laughs> it's it's the most awful thing in the world involving the, uh, the Lake Kid's uh, father, who committed suicide per York police's report on uh, Monday morning, post Father's Day weekend. And yet, Sheba, you shrug your shoulders and you're like, you're not surprised. It's just it's just a tragedy added on to the tragedy that this was already. Oh, this this unfortunate death is on Marco Muzo's hands. That's what I believe. I believe that man, that very selfish man, uh, and I, I'm never going to stop saying his name. Him, I, his family is known as the, the the Pemberton Group. So every time you see a sign around Toronto as the Pemberton Group, mm-hmm. that's his family. We're putting money into their pockets. Um, when you go to Vaughn Mills, do you ever go to Vaughn Mills? Yeah, the, the shopping area. Sure, sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, the huge new Vaughn Hospital called the Cordelucci Vaughn Hospital. There's there the Muzo name is right there. There's a Muzo Tower. Yeah right there to see and every time i see it it just puts such a bad taste in my mouth about that hospital it's wonderful Vaughn. you have a new hospital why do you have to put that name front and center you know why because money talks u of t has the muzo family uh, alumni hall why because money talks i feel as sick kids where these kids were taken mm-hmm. where daniel harrison and millie were taken that day sick kids has a huge wall with the muzo family name it's everywhere this man was supposed to do 10 years, 10 years. He did half of that. And so now, of course, I'm not surprised. You're not surprised. How does a family, how do parents survive after that? Jennifer Neville Lake has been a pillar of strength through this, Her through her social media, through her tweets, through explaining what she's seeing, to, through talking about her feelings every time Marco Muzo's parole decisions come forward. Um, she has been so active online and it's just such a, a it, sad it, story. That part has to, I, I, I'm really interested to comment on some of what you said, but but I, I think you and I talked about it briefly yesterday. Something happens like that to me. I almost need a new identity, a new place, a new, a new space and time. I need to live in Europe. I need to live in Australia. I need to do something because everything, I said this to my wife last night. <sighs> You drive past your kid's former elementary school, it re- would remind you. Um, a baseball field, it would remind you. And I don't know that I could I could handle that level of grief on a daily basis. You're always going to remember people, you know, when we lose our parents, you'll remember them and you'll drive. But you'll think fond things because the goal was they lived out their entire existence. And these kids never, 
ever got an opportunity to. I think you'd have to almost become a different person. And um, I, I, who's to get okay. inside uh, the father's head? But I shrugged my shoulders and in and, and, and just you know it was this huge weight. And I thought I'd understand it. I'd understand the absolute feeling of helplessness. And and I'm I'm going to get personal. How does anyone keep a marriage together? How does anyone? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bond greater when you've suffered this massive loss together. I'm sure it was difficult for both parties. I never and never like getting in, inside people's marriages. People have no idea what goes on in another relationship. So I really do try not to judge it. But how could you keep anything together after this? I don't think you can, which is why Jennifer, I feel, is the pillar of strength because of what I've seen her, how active she's been since this horrible tragedy has happened. And I mean, I, I'm with you. I think I would have to be on suicide watch if that happened to me, or I would have to just leave every single person I know, move to the other side of the world all by myself and start all over where no one knew me, where I had no memories of anything. So for him to do this, Edward Lake um, took his own life the day after Father's Day, one day after. Mm-hmm. So in his victim impact statement in 2016, Ed Lake, through a family member, uh, had said that he had been having suicidal thoughts. He said, I feel I feel lost in my life. It has been destroyed beyond repair. So he was very vocal about these thoughts. This is from from six years ago. So, I, I mean, it doesn't surprise me either. I don't even know. I just don't. Marco Muzo is, I don't get his name off of these buildings get his names he was three times over the legal three times limit over the legal limit coming back from miami on his private plane from his bachelor party now i'd say this here's what i'd say i don't think his money and influence had much to do with the original sentence i think it had a lot to do yes. with them springing him from parole um it, this brady robertson right who was 19 we talked about him who killed yes. three kids and a mother in brampton got 17 years and you and i talked about it the next day and too often we had low expectations as to what he'd get. If you'd asked me, I would have said eight. I was shocked it was more than double that. I know you said it's not enough, and in my heart of hearts, I don't think it's enough either. That takes him till his mid-30s. The Muzo problem is the parole board, and I, I look at this quote, well, he's at low risk to reoffend. I don't care. I yeah. don't care. I want That's this it. to be punitive. I don't care if he uh, is of low risk to reoffend. Um, I care about what he did do in the first place. And the the building's a tricky one. I'm not going to say, I, I agree. I think there's going to be a push to take the name off it. But there's there's a father of Marco Muzo who no doubt walks every day in embarrassment and shame and anger about what his son did. That's his name, right? That's his so kid's what? name. So, but so that matters. Was, you would, you no. would, yes, that matters your, emotionally. Your kid, no, your kid ruined the family name. So now this is what you guys have to pay for it. Use, find another name. Use another alias. I don't know. Figure out your great-grandfather's name. Put that on there. Get the Muzo name off of every building. Pemberton, U of T, Sick Kids, uh, Cordelichi Vaughn Hospital. Get it off. There's a petition, actually. I said there's a petition, petition that's been started online yeah. for Cordelichi Vaughn Hospital to get the Muzo name off. And I love, there are a couple of amazing Italian restaurants in that area that I go to. And every time I go there, I just look, really, like the taste in my mouth when I see Cordelichi Vaughn Hospital and the Muzo name, it's just disgusting. Get the name off. Yeah, sure. His father worked hard. His grandfather worked hard. Uh, but your son, your very entitled, selfish son, ruined the family name. 
And this is what happens when he ruins the family name. He also, I believe he got married during that time. I'm not fully sure. Him and his fiance, I'm not going to say her name at the time, fiance. They have, they're just totally MIA online obviously, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of money because you can't even find any history. When you go on Google and you search someone and you can't find any history on them, that's pretty impressive. He's still, so, but he's still not out. I think he's still at a community facility for another but he's couple co- years, but he's able, he's got full parole, but has to live at this community facility and he can't oh, drink. And he's asked to relocate to, to York Region. Okay. To, oh, he wants to, to be area. back in the same Oh, he wants to be wants. back, and he says it's because of his family's offices and their buildings and work. Uh, and the parole board just said, okay, you obviously don't understand uh, how traumatic that would be for the victim's families to have you there. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a weird one. I'm going to only put myself in his shoes for 30 seconds and say, I, I, yes, I'd want out of prison. But what I'm not realizing is that that by not just pleading guilty, taking what the judge gave me, I'm probably drawing more ire towards towards my family because I can say all the right things. But if I'm using every legal loophole to get out ASAP, that may not make me, you know, exactly a, a paragon of, of you know, well, honor you. And, and, and accountability in my own community. That tells you exactly who he is, what his character mm. is. And he's 36 years old now, right? He's going to have he's going to I don't know. I can't say anything about his fiance other than she has horrible taste in men. But he's going to start a family of his own one day. He's going to be mm-hmm. a dad one day, I'm assuming. And just, I don't think he, I don't know if he will ever understand the impact of what he did. And maybe so So does Brady Robertson, who will get out around the same age. Again, there's yes. a 19-year-old who's going to prison for 17 years. Again, that's the that's almost the precedent-setting case. What will be disappointing is when a parole board comes around in five years and said, ah, you've been such a good kid in prison, model citizen. How about, how about you're out at 22, 23, and you've got an entire family, right? This dad, remember, this is the dad that was left behind, lost his wife, lost his three kids. And this would be probably his third Father's Day without his wife and yeah. three children. Yeah. And Brady's uh, in 17 killed. years. Who knows where he is? Mark Abuza right. is in some fancy facility yeah. in Muskoka where he gets conjugal visits, where he's got it's a be- it's like yeah. a retreat. It's a retreat. Yeah. So we talked about this briefly on the show yesterday. We had a lot of conversations in our own household. And uh, I was watching TV and every now and again, this was a massive story on the national news last night. I know it's made international sound waves as well. FINA is the regulating body for swimming. And on Sunday, they decided we're going to restrict participation of transgender athletes in the elite women's competitions. We've got they want to find a way. I'm, I'm paraphrasing as if I'm on FINA. We've got to find a way to keep the sport fair for biological women and have an open category for uh, transgender athletes. It sounds a lot more complicated than it is. It is certainly an issue that is a I've been around sports my whole life. I can't think of something that's divided people more. And I hate just the concept that it's gone along political lines. And uh, and it has. There's no doubt about it. And especially in the United States, some of this intensified after uh, a swimmer named Leah Thomas at the University of Pennsylvania in the Ivy League became the first transgender NCAA champion in Division I history. She won the women's 500-yard freestyle wants to swim nationally, wants to swim in the next Olympics in Paris. And as of right now, that's not going to be deemed possible. I want to bring on our next guest. Uh, she wrote about this ruling on unheard.com. She is Debbie Hayden. Debbie, thank you very much uh, for crossing the Atlantic, taking the time with us. I also see you're a physics teacher. Physics was my worst subject, but I hope you would have at least tolerated me as a student trying to learn. It's great to have you on the show today. You're very welcome. You're very welcome, Greg. Good to be with you. 
Tell me a little bit about this. I mean, the headline it doesn't. Um, the headline is often not matching the script, but the headline of your story is "Fina's Trans Ruling Is a Return to Common Sense." It the ruling surprised a lot of people, Debbie. What was your initial reaction to it on Sunday? Well, I was pleased with the. I was pleased with the ruling. We have to. Re- we have to remember that sports are segregated not because of how people feel about themselves, but because we all have sex bodies. Uh, If it wasn't for that, why would we segregate sports at all? People would just compete together. But because men and women have different bodies and uh, men are stronger, they're faster uh, than women, it makes sense to have separate categories for men and women. Now, what's been happening in recent years with transgender athletes is competing in the other category. It just it leads to inherent unfairness. And I suspect it was Leah Thomas, which has crystallized concerns in a lot of people, that if this carries on, then uh, there is one group of people who may well dominate women's sport. And it's not women. Thomas is also, I don't want to say it's a unique case, but it's an obvious case of someone who made a, a transition uh, from male to female very late. In fact, after uh, after she was 19 and a half and thus has a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the hormones and a lot of the testosterone that Fina looks at and says, this is what makes the competition unfair, is that the transition wasn't nearly early enough to even even have a conversation about whether it's a level playing field. Well, yes, once you've been through uh, male puberty, your bones are different, your muscles are different. You've always got hips, which were designed for running and throwing and hunting and not for carrying children. There is a difference between men's bodies and women's bodies. And it's not just the testosterone, which is in our blood at that very moment. It's one of those scenarios as well where um, I- I've never seen anything quite like it. The, people ask me and they say, what what has divided people so much and, and why are they so divided? And all I say is I'm, I'm like, there are two remarkable gay icons in the sport of women's tennis, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. And Debbie, they adamantly disagree about um, about whether sport is properly segregated or not. Billie Jean King says, let them into Wimbledon, let them play wherever. And Martina Navratilova says that would be an unfair advantage. And they're like, they can't even meet in the middle on this. They are firmly in one camp each. Well, they are. And those two, it's quite interesting when you when you look at their two backgrounds and their two careers. Uh, Martina Navratilova, of course, was the one who actually hired a transgender coach, mm-hmm. uh, Rennie Richards, years ago. So she's worked with uh, transgender people and been coached by transgender people. Uh, and in doing so, I guess that she's got a better understanding of what the issues are here. Debbie, does this create a domino effect with other sports organizations? It's always difficult to uh, to step forward and say, we're going to be first, um, and and especially with something that is so controversial. And Fina ends up going first. Does this have a ripple effect? And and do more global sport organizations find a way to say we need an open category? This won't work if we have biological males um, competing against biological females. Well, it doesn't. Uh, there's differences between male bodies and female bodies. I know that other sporting uh, governing bodies are looking at this. Athletics uh, are making noises about this. Cycling has already made a decision. Uh, they've changed their rules of cycling because the concern is, is that with an increasing number of people transitioning, uh, the den- there's a danger that uh, women's sport becomes uh, dominated by a group of uh, transgender people. 
I also also am amazed at how political it is. And it's not just in the United States. I, I see it in Canada. I'm sure you see it in the UK. We've played several clips of Sharon Davies, a former, you know, uh, Olympic medalist. And she's been very outspoken, but she's gotten the uh, now it's standard, you know, death threats. Um, she's homophobic. She's transphobic. Um, she's gotten a lot of these. I do believe tra- there's very much transphobic communities and transphobic politicians. But I, I don't know that they weigh in with with logical arguments on these issues like like Sharon has a very logical argument about this, as do you. Well, yes, there are transphobic people around people who uh uh, who disagree with my right to uh, teach children to uh, exist, well, to uh, be a full member of society. But this is a different group. This is a group who are looking at rights and looking at balance in different people's rights and also thinking about the responsibility of transgender people as well. Yes, we're accepted in, in society. Uh, people uh, will uh, work with me. I work with other people. But uh, our responsibility is not... We have a responsibility not to impose ourselves on other groups. And what's been happening here is that uh, there's been a, there's been the idea that because people are transgender, we uh, were somehow different to everybody else. We're not when we're normal human beings, the same as everybody else. And uh, and occasionally people are going to disagree with us and disagreeing with transgender people and transgender people's ideas is not transphobia. Debbie Hayden is joining us on uh, Toronto today. A uh, great pleasure to have her on. People have asked me and because it became I, I'd like to think we're all a, a ton more enlightened than when these discussions first started happening about the the the, the runner Castor Semenya. This is a much different scenario than uh, whether or not Castor Semenya should have been running in the Olympics, is it not? It is different. And going back to the FINA ruling, the FINA have actually conflated transgender and intersex, which I actually regret that because these are two different things. Transgender people are people who have some psychological condition, they identify in some ways, whereas intersex people have got a diagnosable condition related to their uh, sexual development. And these are very different issues that should be dealt with separately. Do you worry about about what FINA's um, regulation is, is Debbie, is that uh, here's the quote, and, and you quoted it as well in your story. If they can establish to FINA's comfortable satisfaction, they have not experienced any part of male puberty beyond Tanner stage two or before age 12, in essence, the same thing, whichever is later. 12 is this is me saying this from conversations with other parents. 12 is awfully early to get going on 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 making a firm decision. I think I think you can have a gender identity at that age. It's another thing to have had a surgical procedure. It's another thing even to be on puberty blockers that would come in the next few years. But is do do you worry that this will create some critics of the ruling say, well, this will create having to make an irreversible decision before age 12. But I can't believe any parents thinking, well, you won't be able if we don't get this done in the next three months, Olympic swimming is out. I just don't think that's how it works in families that are uh, that are, you know, progressive and and are educated on these topics. Well, children that age have had their puberty blocked. The claim is that it's reversible. I don't believe it is. Uh, we've got no evidence about whether it's reversible or not, and there's evidence emerging that uh, it causes harm. So I think this is a mistake. I think it's a mistake by FINA to make this uh, to make that ruling in there, and I think it will put uh, extra pressure on 10, 11 year old children who are confused with their gender. I really do. Uh, and I also worry about uh, other regimes across the world. I'm not thinking about Canada or the United mm-hmm. Kingdom, but uh, in Germany, in my living memory. 
uh, Germany was doping their uh, female athletes in the 1980s. East Germany, uh, especially, weren't they? Before the, yeah, well, before the East, Berlin Wall fell the, down. Yeah. In East Germany, this was going on. This, this is what brought Sharon Davis into this debate because she was competing with people who had been doped effectively. Now, what, what the temptation must be for similar regimes now is to look at their 10, 11-year-old boys, the best swimmers there, and be thinking about uh, how they could perhaps, uh, mm. how they could put country before the, uh, the individual children. That worries me. It was a great pleasure to have you on. You can find her uh, at Debbie Hayden on Twitter. Her piece, uh, her opinion piece is on unheard.com. Debbie, thank you very much for making time for us in Toronto. I enjoyed our conversation. You're welcome. Good to talk to you, Greg. We saw this list on BlogTO and absolutely couldn't resist because the headline grabs me right away. 30 signs you grew up in Toronto in the 1980s. Now, I didn't grow up in Toronto in the 1980s, but I can tell you every single opportunity. We're going to drop your sister off. We're going to meet a friend. We're, we're, uh, we want to go out for dinner with another couple. Take me, take me, please take me. How can you take me? I can, I can be 11 years old. You can leave me in the hotel room. I'll be fine, but I just want to be in Toronto. And every, obviously, chance you got to go to a Blue Jays game or something else, um, you did these things. So um, I am not a Toronto kid, but luckily... Gord Rennie and uh, and Sheba Siddiqui. You guys are more Toronto kids than me. You just are. Oh, yeah. Right? Gord, where'd you grow up? Scarborough. Okay. Ooh. It's downtown all the time. Yeah. And, the, and and that felt like probably more, less its own borough right now. That just felt like East Toronto probably to you. Yeah. Because we didn't sort of GTA all this up and, and have all these regions. By the way, I keep hearing people say the GTA area. Is that not a... That's in the greater the, Toronto area yeah. area? Yeah. Is that what that is now? <laughs> yeah. Don't say that, people on... <laughs> Maybe other stations, whatever. But don't say that. Um, so here's the list. This is really, really amazing. And you guys tell me when things leap out at you, and I'll, I'll bash through some of our, our favorites here. Sign one. If you were really, really lucky, your friend's birthday party would be at Tour of the Universe, a space shuttle simulator located beneath the CN Tower that flew you to Jupiter and back. I have no knowledge of Tour of the Universe. Oh, yeah. I remember that vividly. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever do it? Yes. Just the once, though. But I, mean, I remember it ads on TV all the time, and anytime you were down there, they had uh, signs for it. You're going to be way up on me on a lot of the things that you, uh, both you and Sheba combined. This okay. is going to be a bit of a blowout here. You rent now, I recognize some of these names, you rented VHS or beta tapes at the video station, Video Barn, Major Video, Video Flix, Jumbo Video, National Video, Bandito Video, 7-Eleven, Edens, Sam the Video Man, or Canadian <laughs> Tire. You could rent VHS tapes of Canadian Tire in Toronto? I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I don't remember it's, that. Jumbo was a big brand name. Jumbo yes. Video was where you, everybody had yes. a little card and a yeah. membership and whatnot. Yeah, the elephant was the logo. And you felt bad when you didn't remember to be kind and rewind. rewind. Yeah, exactly that. Um, sign three, you learned a lot about Leslieville geography from watching episodes of the Kids of Degrassi Street. Yes, absolutely you did. And Degrassi Junior High, too. And Degrassi High. When, and you saw Drake when Drake was in a wheelchair, right? Was he in a... <laughs> I don't remember the yeah. Drake era quite as much because I'm oh, yeah. that was I'm Joey characters. Jeremiah, I'm Zit Remedy, I'm yeah. Snake and Wheels. Yeah. The two twins with the that. curly hair. Yeah, I I, I think uh, one got pregnant. I, I can't remember. I passed on Degrassi. <laughs> How could you oh, pass I on Degrassi? So cool. I know it just wasn't in it wasn't in my I don't know, wheelhouse. That, I guess I missed the train on that. Um and every time I came into the city, I would go and find the school at Degrassi <laughs> Public School. I thought it was so cool. Like it was a Hollywood. 
there's a lot of American kids that learned a lot about Toronto from Degrassi because oh, it was yeah. on PBS. For sure. And that's when you yes. only got like six channels and yep. six networks. So just to get a prime spot, I'm sure a lot of those uh, actors, the uh, the Pat Master Oyanos or whatever, would be able to go to like any any major U.S. city and be like, you're you're Joey. Yeah. You know, that would I, be weird. I had a crush on you in 1980s, despite your shirt and hat. I, <laughs> I had a crush on you. Sign, okay, another sign. Becker's was your go-to oh. for all snackables. But I remember Max Milk being quite yeah. a rival. Max Milk and Becker's yeah. were like that was like Coke and Pepsi. Yeah, for Ford sure. And GM. Was it Becker's or Max that you could get the little teeny plastic jug of chocolate milk? It was like a I don't know. Becker's I wasn't it? I think it, I think it was, was Becker's. So really, you just went to the one that was closest to your house. That's true. You did that. Right? Sign eight. Your parents took you to see Polka Dot Door live at a mall or the CNE. You guys will speak to this better than me. Uh, I miss that. No, Talk miss about that. eras that I miss. My sisters watched that, and I'm like, get that. Put, will you put some news on? Or Can I watch Tom Brokaw? Oh, oh. You never watched Polka Dot Enough Door? Enough of Marigold and yeah. Val, uh, the, 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 the guy, <laughs> pet, or whatever his name, Pokeroo. Pokeroo. Yeah. The poor uh, male host. We haven't seen Pokeroo. Pokeroo. Remember Shiba? He was at the first <laughs> first kids vaccine clinic in Toronto, and we haven't seen yes. him since. We're and like, the kids were terrified. They had yeah. no idea who this person is. They're like, I was born in 2016. <laughs> who is this monster hanging, <laughs> a purple right. monster hanging over me? I like this one. Uh, you observed that all the cool kids did their back-to-school clothes shopping at Stitches. Well, maybe so, but mm. thrifties... Thrifties. Beaver Canoe, North by Northwest, no, all very Stitches competitive. Stitches was the place. Stitches yeah. was the place. And to work there, so I, I got I worked at Stitches back in the day. I thought I'd made it in life. You are so lucky to get that. I would have loved a retail <laughs> job at a cool cotton ginny. I feel like that's more female than male. My mom didn't take me to those stores. I went to uh, Byway and Towers. When you got to get by a Roots sweater, that was a big deal. We were very middle class also. When you got to go yeah. to Roots and skip, skip Byway or Woolco. Yeah. Holy cow, for back-to-school shopping. It. My mom would yes. buy me Levi jeans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember this. Let's go ahead to sign 14. Okay. Uh, we'll do a couple more. Uh, when visiting the Metro Toronto Zoo, you rode the monorail <gasps> and thought the McDonald's there had the best fries. I have, I know I went as a teenager, but I don't remember the monorail, and I don't remember them having a McDonald's. I don't remember yeah. any of that oh, yeah. at oh, the yeah. zoo. Vividly remember the the monorail because it it took you deeper into the zoo where it wasn't really there wasn't any exhibits there. It was just like you know white-tailed deer and the occasional fox. But, but what it, could you see? Like like you couldn't get necessarily closer to like hippos or anything like that. No, but you did go uh, like behind <laughs> exhibit where where you know the public was in the front and then the monorail would go in behind. So you got a different perspective on the hippos. I feel like again mm. our, our family was just more an African lion safari. Despite my dad's uh, you know uh, brushed uh, brush with death with the ostrich, <laughs> we were more an African lion safari family. Um, and I like this one. It's not really about going places, but when the consumers distributing catalog arrived in the mail. The toy section was lusted over for weeks. Oh. So was the electronics. Speaking of lusting, um, you know, because you, you'd want all I wanted was a double cassette player. All I wanted was to go tape to tape. Yeah. Yeah. To make my own tape. Yes. Because yep. I was not a that record person. I was buying cassettes by then. But you thought, how can I make a mixtape, Sheba? How can I how can I give a mixtape to the girl I have a crush on in seventh grade or eighth grade? You needed to go tape to tape. You couldn't yeah. just tape things off the radio. I gave my kids a cassette the other day. I found it in, like in the basement, and I showed it to them. And I asked them, they had, I asked them what it was. I'm like, try to guess what it is. No clue, no clue. They couldn't figure it out. 
Uh, Couldn't figure it out. I love this. This is on uh, Blog To, so uh, full credit to them for finding 30 signs, and there's a ton more uh, involving arcades and um, watching 20-minute workout, which I, I do think I watched that, and I think my mom attempted to do the 20 <laughs> I think she lasted seven of the 20 minutes once. This was, I, I thought, fantastic journalism, and I enjoyed reading it. We wanted to have the author of uh, of the piece on from the London Free Press. Uh, he is Dale Crothers and joins us right now. Dale, thanks very much for uh, for making the time for our show. We appreciate it. Yeah, good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Totally. Are you a Londoner uh, by nature like myself? I am. Yes, I am. I'm not in London today, but that's where I was born. And that's where I work out of. Where'd you go to high school? I went to uh, Catholic Central. Oh, CCH, the Mighty Crusaders. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went to Medway and then uh, after expulsion. No, no, I left to to take OACs and get done. And uh, I, I want to get my, done my grade 13 and a half a year. And then I went to Oak Ridge, so. I was sort oh, of a nice, yeah. West London, uh, Masonville kid up in, uh, in that range. Love that yeah, area. Big difference stuff. between Medway and Oak Ridge, I'm sure. <laughs> country boys. To all those snobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I didn't fit, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, I'm like, oh, you're all going to the hunt club later today uh, to, uh, <laughs> to golf with your parents. I'm like, I, uh, I, I'm not. It's one of those things. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So this is really something because you can imagine oh, we had a, a, a span of shootings in, uh, in the GTA over the weekend. And we talked about it on the show yesterday. And a lot of this, as Mark Saunders, the previous uh, police chief, and James Raymer, the new chief, have documented, has a lot to do with street gangs. But you wrote that there's a lot of a lot of cities smaller than, say, your Toronto and Ottawa. A lot of police chiefs are saying, this is a problem in our community, and we don't have near the resources of a Toronto and Ottawa to deal with these street gangs. Yeah, um, street gangs, it's really a loose definition, but... Um a criminal organization is defined as a group of three or more people committing a serious offense for a material gain. So that can constitute a street gang. So they're loosely organized. And street gangs traditionally are associated with turf territory, right? They have a certain neighborhood in Toronto or Scarborough, something like that. But what this report from um, the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police found is street gangs are more likely to engage in criminal activity outside of their home turf. So they're leaving the GTA, going to other communities in southwestern Ontario particularly to commit crimes because they feel more anonymous, they're not known to police, and they feel there's more of an opportunity there. So we see them expanding to these other communities, and that, that presents challenges mm -hmm. for police because police aren't familiar with the players, um, they're not familiar with how they operate. Um, and of course, police have methods to combat this. They're sharing intelligence to track the movements of these street gang members and working together um, in collaboration is the, the biggest way to kind of combat these illegal activities is what they say. Dale Crothers is joining us on Toronto Today uh, from the London Free Press is a, uh, a story that, that he wrote yesterday about it. And you make the case that, uh, look, the age demographic is pretty easy to to drill in on and narrow down. You write, and this, this makes sense to most people, is the ages between 19 and 21. We wouldn't expect to find very very many 35-year-old street gang members or a street gang leader that has a, a two-car garage and a pool in his backyard. It is it is kids that are primarily either out of high school or didn't finish high school, and, and they're that age when a lot of other kids are starting in the workforce or they're in university or college, but they're not. That's exactly it. 1821 is the prime age for street gang members. Of course, minors are also involved in street gangs, but the report highlighted how street gangs are unlike other organized crime members. Um, traditional crime families, uh, as we know, the mafia is what we call it, mm -hmm. or outlaw motorcycle gangs. They're significantly older than street gang members. Um, and one of the reasons is uh, if you're involved in the street gang, you're involved in crime and 
you end up in jail, you end up getting hurt, you leave it. It's a young man's game, really, right? Like you said, you're not going to be doing this until you're 35. The one thing as well I notice is, um, and I don't know that it's it's not a conversation point when you know people get get together for a dinner party or a backyard barbecue. I think I think we talk about crime and I think we talk about you know break-ins and and I think there's been more conversations certainly in the last month about carjackings, but human trafficking and the idea of there being hubs along that sort of highway 401 that I reference when you drive from London to Windsor, the idea of Chatham uh, being like a hub for either a commercial sex market or, or human trafficking like that alarm me dramatically. Cause you just think this is something that happens in major urban metropolitan areas, not small rural towns outside of, you know, just off the highway. But, but the documentation is showing sex traffickers find they can use this network of corridors easily um, to, um, as you put it, keep their victims isolated. Yeah, th- that's exactly it. All along the 401 in uh, Southwestern Ontario, Right up the GTA into southern Ontario, you have um, commercial sex hubs. That's where prostitution operates, typically out of hotels, Airbnbs, um, often mm-hmm. along the highway. Because a lot of people purchasing sex, say they live in Kitchener-Waterloo, they might drive down to London or Chatham because they, they feel that they'll be more anonymous there, less likely to get caught. And the human traffickers are the same. These are often street gangs involved in this because they find it so lucrative. So they're... Um, running prostitution out of these hotels and Airbnbs outside the GTA all along the 401. And um, they're increasingly getting involved in it because it's so lucrative. Unlike firearms trafficking, drug trafficking, where you sell a gun, sell drugs, with selling sex, you can keep doing it multiple times. Um, and it's connected to the gun, gun trade and uh, the drug trade too, human trafficking, very connected. We see these big sex trafficking, uh, human trafficking busts in southwestern Ontario all the time. And it's not uncommon to see suspects from the GTA charged. And um, that used to be rare, but now it's it's fairly commonplace that there's a big human trafficking bus, three guys from the GTA are charged. The chance that they're involved in a street gang is often very uh, high. What do mayors uh, say about it? What would the mayor of London, Ed Holder, he's been on our show a few times, what would he say about it? What would that so conversation be like with him and law enforcement? Is this is this so it's an obvious scenario that's happening more and more in London than than people who haven't been to London as frequently as as you have living there might might think like what do, what what can the mayor do about a scenario like this? Well, that's part of what the OACP report is trying to do. It's trying to bring this issue into the mainstream conversation. So it's not just crime reporters like myself and Mm -hmm. police aware of it. They want everyday citizens to be aware of it. They want politicians to be aware of it so they can take action. They're trying to raise awareness. That's why it's called out of the shadows because it's this, it's operating around us, but you go about your daily life and don't even see it there. Um, You don't even see organized crime. Maybe you'll see someone with a Hell's Angels patch drive by you and you think nothing more of it. But then when you read that headline about another uh, three fentanyl overdoses on the weekend, no one's making that link that this is organized crime bringing those drugs into our community. So the goal of the OACP, OACP report is really to get the conversation started and to get it on people's awareness. And so that's what I was trying to do with my reporting, just kind of lay out some basic facts about street gangs, how they work and why it is a threat to us. And it's not just a big city problem. So hopefully politicians like uh, London Mayor Ed Holder, like you mentioned, will start having that conversation. And even just everyday citizens listening to the show will have a stronger understanding of it and um, kind of press the police and politicians for 
to take action, that type of thing. Yeah. That's the goal, I think. Yeah, it's obviously taking, uh, you know, with uh, with different units being created, um, it's obviously changing things with, you know, specific officers dedicated uh, to street gangs or dedicated to trafficking um, of, of that variety. Uh, you can read his work in the London Free Press. Uh, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much for, for making time on the show. And I really enjoyed your journalism, Dale. Thanks so much. Thanks, Greg. My pleasure. Take care. Dale Crothers from the London uh, Free Press. HGTV Canada has Gut Job Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock with former pro athlete turned all-star builder Sebastian Clovis. And he's kind enough to join us right now to weigh in on a few different things. It's been a while. New show tomorrow night. Thanks for coming on uh, Toronto Today as always, Sebastian. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I always love coming on AM 640. I, uh, I grew up listening to this station, so it's a little nostalgic for me. Absolutely, man. And it was great. Uh, it was great when we uh, we introduced you to our audience. By the way, how about a nice practice today in this heat? Don't you miss your playing days? Let's get let's get out there. Maybe a one o'clock uh, practice and heavy pads. <laughs> get at it uh, say, out in hey, Regina hey. in like a 40 humid X. Why not? Right. Like on a day like this, you got to <laughs> practice early in the morning if you want to have any chance of surviving it. <laughs> yeah, but nobody, you know, wa- this- nobody wants a 7 a.m. practice, Sebastian. That's not going to go over well among uh, dudes in their 20s. Come on. Hey, you're, you're absolutely right. But uh, also, don't forget, I did have a little stint where I played down in Mississippi. And uh, the temperatures got up <laughs> over there. And you were happy when coach said practices at 6 a.m. You were like, goodness gracious, I beat the heat. So let's go. Well, I got some people doing renovations in my neighborhood right now. And I, th- I think of them, you know, this is when we get into these arguments about work from home. And I'm like, that, that guy, that roofer, he doesn't have a choice. Somebody digging out a backyard right. pool uh, with a bobcat does not have a choice. They are right. at it. What I want to ask you about, though, is whether rising costs. I, I had some shingles blew off the roof in that big storm a few weeks ago on a Saturday. Right. And I kind of had to hunt around a little bit and I'm not trying to deny anybody, you know, their, uh, you know, th- their livelihood, but I had to hunt to get the right quote. And I bet you a lot of homeowners are doing that. I, I had maybe under an hour of work and I get it though. Materials are costing more. The travel to get to job sites is costing more. What are you hearing out there in the, uh, in the renovation world? Yeah, um, I think that your your tale is a common one. Uh, everything is, is, of course, costing more right now. People are definitely shopping around for quotes that, that fit them. Um, and so I've had I've actually had quite a few people who, who have come to me who are very excited to work with me in the, in the last little bit, but ultimately haven't been able to pull the trigger on the renovations just because, you know, the, the costs are where they are. People are, are yeah, people are feeling the sticker shock across the board. It doesn't matter if you're in a restaurant, supermarket, gas station, or if you're getting a renovation. You know, everything is more expensive. And even just the guys, even just the handymen and the guys who are out there doing the shingles or or the, the trades guys who are just doing, you know, very speci- specified parts of the renovation, all of their all of their charges are up. And so, you know, globally, when you're doing a renovation and you've got five, ten different trades guys coming in, trades people coming in. Um, the, the costs are kind of through the roof right now. So it's a little bit of, uh, if it's a, if it's a luxury renovation, maybe, mm. maybe just hold on for a little bit, but if it's something you got to do, like replace the shingles on your roof, well, we all have to do what we have to do. I think you nailed it, Sebastian. There's people that I, I think are waiting on, you know, knocking out that wall and, uh, and expanding their kitchen or putting new cabinets in and they want to, they want to sort of wait this out. That's not great for the industry, but the necessary stuff, you got no choice. And they, by the way, they might have somebody they really rely on that they've had, 
you know, do a lot of their work around the house for four to five years. But nobody wants to haggle with somebody that they've built. When you build a relationship with somebody, um, a, yeah. uh, a client customer relationship, you don't want to haggle about price. But the but when materials are up and gas is up, you got to charge more. It's the bottom line. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, haggling is never the way to go, especially with with renovators. Uh, I, I just don't believe in it because, you know, in my opinion, we're artisans. We do hard work that nobody else will really do. And and if you got to go in for, you know, if you got to go in for a surgery of some type, you don't haggle with the doctor over whether he can bring the price down on your surgery or, you know, or, or whatever that may be. You don't, you don't haggle with other professionals. So I don't think you should be haggling with renovators. Our costs are real. We don't have the luxury of driving small cars. We all have to drive big trucks that take a lot of gas. It's very expensive to fill them. And uh, the cost of the tools are up, consumables mm -hmm. is up, uh, and materials themselves. And so, um, but at the same time, I'm not worried about the renovation industry. There's plenty of work going around. There are no renovators, at least in this city, that are sitting down trying to find work right now. It's a, it, it, the one thing they say is that, you know, uh, the renovation industry is, is bulletproof when it comes to recessions. There will always work and construction and renovation always needs to be done. And so we'll always keep working. Um, at least that's what mm. history has shown us. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's no fear over the industry itself. It's just maybe it's just yeah. a little bit more, a little bit more choosy over which renovations we go for right now. Yeah, uh, you can see Gut Job tomorrow night. Uh, Sebastian's the host, executive producer. It's on HGTV Canada, which you can see on Stack TV, and that's available through Amazon Prime. We're speaking with Sebastian Clovis today on Toronto Today. Um, pandemic precautions. I don't think it just matters for contractors or or workers. We had a guy in to take popcorn off uh, the, that popcorn ceiling stuff off a ceiling. Yeah. That's a tough job. That's a hard job. You're on like a footstool a bunch of the time and you're wearing a KN95 mask. So I remember the guy yeah. last spring, even just as we were all starting to get vaccinated and I'm urging the guy, I'm like, take as many breaks as you get. You grab anything you want from the fridge. You do what you got to do. Don't worry about wearing the mask the full time. I bet you there's a lot on a day like this. I bet you there's a lot of of those conversations of people just not sure when they pull up to a house if they've never met that client before you know, sort of what's a go and what's not. It's, um, it's, it's, you, you know, you, you play that sort of feeling out game a little bit, don't you? I think that, yeah, across the board, every time we go into a new house, we meet a new client uh, right away, just from a respect factor, uh, we're walking in with, with masks on until we feel out the situation and, and see what's acceptable. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, it's definitely hard to wear those, those big respirator oh. masks when the temperature is what it is right now. And, and, and and I don't know if you know a roofer in your life on a day like today, just call them and check up on them because, you know, when they're up on those roofs with that, that sun coming down and they got the torch, the, the propane torches burning the tar down and the, the heat's hitting the black tar and then bouncing back up onto them. Those they, mm -hmm. they are they um, they're hard workers and they deserve their flowers. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, a million percent agree with you. Hey, as a former varsity athlete, really curious. We we you know we talked to a few parents talking about the university experience. We're all hoping for normalcy. I, I you probably are like me. You can't imagine having like two years of of your academics and your athletics blown up because of COVID. Some of what we did, I'd say we had to do. Some of it, we could debate whether we did too much. What's your hope when when you you know you think about yourself at eighteen, nineteen? What's your hope for normalcy this fall um, with kids going to university and colleges? Whether they're playing whether they're playing football or just going to school, that university experience is just it's it was everything probably to you, just like it was to me. Yeah. 
No, it really was. Uh, there, it was so much bigger than academics and even athletics. It, it was the, the whole social experience and, and, and getting out from mom and dad's house and, and getting on your own too and being self-sufficient, self-reliant. And those are very formative years. And so I, I hope that the students going in, well, from the athletic standpoint, I really hope that the, the two years didn't crush anybody's dreams and that they can mm. get back on the field and 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 be able to uh, play at the level that they were expecting themselves and hoping themselves to be playing at at this point in time. And then we, they can just do do it with love in their heart and let go of a lot of the fear. And uh, and just from that social standpoint, yeah, listen, man, I hope the kids are out there and they're throwing some house parties and they're they're enjoying <laughs> themselves. And yeah, I do. And they can get they can do their little jobs. They're, they're bouncing. I was a bouncer in university. And so, you know, I hope the guys can get back out there and get out to the clubs and work in security. You just 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 be able to have some of those stories that both you and I have. So when they're a little bit older, they can look back on this with a fond memory. That's right. And also know that the money, they also know that money they spent on university was worth it. And tell mom and dad to go away for the weekend and take a romantic vacation. They haven't had much time together. The last, it doesn't have to turn into risky business. It we don't it doesn't have to. That house party doesn't have to turn into that kind of scenario. But you know, we'll oh, see no, what absolutely. happens. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I I didn't mean a crazy wild house party. I just meant like a regular, like have a few beers and play with a deck of cards. You know? Yeah, yeah. In, in just innocent stuff, like we all were involved in innocent. in college. A hundred percent. Who's kidding? Who? That's right. Hey, uh, good luck. Uh, to, uh, obviously, the show's a big hit on tomorrow night. We'll all be watching on HGTV Canada. I know you're uh, cutting some uh, some stuff for season two right now. So glad it's uh, glad it's been greenlit to come back. And thanks for being a friend to our show. We'll have you on more often in the summer. I promise. Thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate it. You bet. Sebastian Clovis uh, joining us from HGTV Canada's Gut Job. What a great find uh, for talk radio. Great to have Sebastian on. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We're back with a live show tomorrow, 530 to 9. You can hear it on the Radio Player Canada app and at 640toronto.com. Appreciate you listening.